So a quick summary, over the last like 4,000 weeks we've been talking about some topics. Some of the main points I want you to remember as we move into this continuous discussion about making Jesus the center of everything and recognizing who we are as the church and how the church is the fullness of God on the earth in Christ and the relevancy of that. Right? A constant reminder to us as we listen that this is not Jesus versus the church. This is Jesus as the church. Okay? It's a significant difference that many of us have a hard time understanding. But when I am referring to the church, I am referring to the manifest expression of Christ on the earth. Not the local gathering of some dudes and gals together on a Sunday to sing songs. Okay? as literally the thing Jesus came to establish. The reason why he said it would be better for him to leave. That's what I'm talking about when I say church. Okay? It's Christ multiplied. Christ manifested. Christ expressed. Christ existing as his church. We talked about how this pursuit of Christ has been established from the beginning of end of scriptures because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And that this wisdom and knowledge and understanding is more valuable than gold and rubies and riches and any other thing you could pursue. It's the wisdom of God, not just wisdom. The wisdom of God. And it's all hidden in Christ. And that Christ has revealed himself to us in his word. And that we should pour over this thing until we see his face revealed to us. Recognizing that our pursuit of the scriptures is a means to an end. That it is a living word. It is given to us to discern ourselves. But it's a means as we pursue, it will continually reveal Christ. Because... To know Christ is eternal life. We talked about what it means to to know Him, to believe in Him, to diligently pursue Him. Right? This one who is the rewarder of those who diligently pursue Him. But again, reminding us that the reward for diligently pursuing Him is not riches and possessions and comfort. It is Him. He's the rewarder of those who diligently pursue him, and the reward is that you will find and possess and be with him. And in that place, you will realize he is more valuable than all the riches and all the wealth. That's why Jesus tells the parable, we talked about the treasure in the field. We titled one of the messages, Treasure Map, right? That the scriptures are a treasure map to the true treasure. And that when one finds it, he would go and sell all the riches and possessions that he had gladly in exchange for the amount of money it would take to buy the field just so he could have the treasure that was found in that field. That treasure being the kingdom of God. Right? We talked about what this diligent pursuit looks like as opposed to what most of us have lived, which is a casual pursuit. And how a casual pursuit will earn you casual rewards. The treasure for a casual pursuit is some temporary comfort 
and some deceptive security. Whereas a diligent pursuit will cost you everything, but the reward will be eternal life in Christ with Christ. There's no comparison between the two. We talked last week about not worrying about tomorrow and why we can so confidently not worry about tomorrow. And what the reason was, right? God wasn't saying don't worry about tomorrow because it'll all be fine, I'll I'll get rid of all the problems. No, his, his promise was don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has plenty of stuff going on. Don't worry because today has more than enough stuff going on. But I want you to know that I am going to provide everything you need to deal with tomorrow's stuff, just like I'm going to provide everything you need to deal with today's stuff, I'm going to do that part so that you can do the more important part, which is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because when you do that, everything else that the Gentiles so passionately pursue will be given to you. Don't worry about it. The point was, don't worry. And then I said, how can you say such a thing? Look at what's in front of us. Look at the obstacles in front of us. And the scriptures tell us, hey, set your eyes towards the mountains. And then say, where does my help come from? My help, the reason why I don't have to worry, comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. So I wanted to drill down into some of this. Because again, I was praying, thinking, wrestling through scripture reading through Isaiah some, and there's so many cool things in Isaiah, but I came across this passage I want to read towards the end, Isaiah 12. It's a short chapter. But it struck me as the progression of a person who had come to realize that Yahweh was everything he needed. That he found this progression of satisfaction in Yahweh, where at the beginning he was talking about the obstacles and troubles, and then towards the middle and then repeated at the end, he says, for you, Yah, have become my salvation. It's this bold declaration of a revelation that happened. And it's a whole praise. So, I was thinking, I don't often, you know, do it, but I wanted to consolidate my point here. So I was like, a title will help do that if I come up with a title. And so I wanted to title this message, satisfied. Okay? So I want you to keep that in your mind, that the whole place this message is going to is is to drill down on this idea of being satisfied. But genuinely satisfied. Truly satisfied. I'm going to rattle off some scriptures. Hosea 13, verse 5 and 6 says this, I fed you in the wilderness. This is God prophesying to a wayward Israel. They've gone away. He's saying, you don't know me. There's no knowledge of me in the land. You strayed from me. This is the message of Hosea. But then he's saying, but I am going to win you back and love you again like I did at the first. Okay? And in the midst of that, towards the end, he says this. I fed you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. When they had pasture, they became satisfied. They were satisfied, and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Interesting. He's talking about how they were satisfied, but in their satisfaction, they forgot him. He's saying, when they had drought, when there was no pastures, no way to get food, no way to take care of their needs, I fed them in that place. 
I met them with manna from heaven and water from rocks, and I took care of them, gave them shelter from the heat and warmth from the cold winter, I mean, from the cold wilderness nights. I was their provision. I didn't provide for them. I was their provision. And he goes into detail. I fed them. And another translation says, I knew them in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And when they had pasture, they became satisfied. And they were satisfied, and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. This is, to me, the devastating effect of the entire story of Israel and the church. Is that when we're in great need, we cry out to God because our need has surpassed our ability to be met by our own efforts. We've run out. We don't have what it takes anymore. We're actually desperate now. And so in our desperation, we cry out in hope, not even faith, but in hope that God will help us. And then God's like, of course I'm going to help you. Let me give you this strength. Let me provide for you here as I always do. And then he gets us on our feet and he's like, you're taken care of. And suddenly we're able to do things seemingly in our own effort, not recognizing it was God himself who gave us the power and ability to generate that wealth. And we come satisfied. But worst case, in that satisfaction, we become proud. Steve, how do we come proud? We become proud because we think we're doing it on our own. We think God helped us over the hump so that we can take the reins back and don't worry. We have it under control now. Thanks, God. Thanks for that quick assistance. I'm good now. And then we live that way. We live as like God did his job. Let's put him back in the lamp until we need him again and then we'll rub it and hope he helps. That's the pride Hosea is talking about. That they were satisfied, and then in their satisfaction, they became proud. And they decided that they didn't need him. To me, I think this is the root of our casual pursuit. This sits at the root of it. It's our own pride. And the pride is manifested so many times, and I I never remember who said this quote, but he essentially said this. He said that prayer is the pulse of life for a Christian, right? Like, think about it. When you go to hospital and they check your pulse to see if you're alive. He said prayer is the pulse of life. And he said by that, any doctor can tell whether your soul is good or in sickly need of health. Think about it. Why why would... Prayer be the pulse of life for a Christian. Scripture tells us, and our own experience tells us, because when we're desperate, when we know we don't have it ourselves, that's when we go to prayer. That's when we seek the source of what we need, our life. Suddenly our pulse is racing, we're desperate, and we go to him, and we begin to pray, and what a coincidence, God answers and shows up. But then when we're satisfied, we take our eyes off him. We stop that same pursuit because we don't have that desperate, instinctive need driving us. And our pulse slows down. And we stray from prayer. We stray from focusing on God. And we begin to focus on the next squeaky wheel and the next thing in front of us. And we think we can do it. 
And suddenly the life of God within us begins to die. And we settle into a casual pursuit where we'd never stop being part of the church or coming to Sunday services. We'd never stop being part of the things that, that keep us in the rhythm that we have as Christians. But what if we could just get over that hump, that casual pursuit, that hump where we recognize, God, I need you for even my, my, my satisfactions, for my desires. God, I need you to not be worshiping false gods and other idols. I need you so I don't slip into a worship of my spouse or my children or my career or my education or my causes. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 is the next verse we're going to rattle off on. Verse 5 says this Keep your life free from the love of money. It's good advice. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do you see what he tied together there, though? Keep your life free from the love of money. Good advice. But now, exchange the word money for possessions, comfort, safety, security, things that you want. I mean, that's what we use money for. If we already had all those things, money would be irrelevant to us. The only reason why money is relevant is because it's what we need to get those things. Right? So keep yourself free from the love of money. But why? He says this. Be satisfied with what you have. Because Christ has already said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the reason. How do we tie those things together? Jesus is never going to leave me, and he's never going to forsake me. Therefore, I don't need to love money. I don't need to love any of it. That's the tie-in. Because he's with me, and he will never leave me, and he will never forsake me, I will always be taken care of. I will always have what I need. I can pursue Christ, and Christ alone, because that's all taken care of. That, to me, is a really powerful New Testament exhortation. So we go from Hosea right into Hebrews where Paul is saying, hey, Paul, Apollos, whoever your preference is, is arguing, thank you, Craig, is arguing this point. And he's saying, guys, don't. He's speaking to the church. Don't worry about these things. We jump to Philippians 4. Look at this exhortation. In Philippians 4, verse 10, and do 11. He says this. After telling him, thank you for providing for me what I needed, you provide in such abundance. He says, I don't say this out of need. This is Apostle Paul. I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content, satisfied, in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. And I know how to make do with a lot. In any 
and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being satisfied. Think about this, guys. Paul is saying, I've learned this secret. In my life, I had to learn something. This was one of the things I learned going through hardship and times of abundance, where I had to work my butt off while ministering and preaching to you, and other times where you so abundantly provided for me, I was able to send to other people. In all these circumstances, I've discovered this secret to be content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Here's the secret I found. The secret to be content. content. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he says, still, you did well in partnering with me. I'm not saying I didn't need it. I'm very grateful for your provision and the abundance you provided for me. But I want you to know this, that I see that and I understand it as the provision of God for what I need to do. And he said, I found this secret to be content and fully satisfied that whether in abundance or lack, I can do all the things God has asked me to do, a.k.a. I can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because of his provision to me. Right? Because it's him providing and strengthening and equipping me to do that. If Paul were to stray from that, just like us, if we were to stray from those things God has put in front of us to provide for us, we may see very quickly that provision dry up. That's what he promises in Hosea. He says, guys, because you've become proud, the very next line, which I didn't read, he says, I will become like a lion to you and devour your fields and destroy your pastures. Why? Because God's a big meanie? Nope. Because he wants you. And when you take your eyes off him and you start depending on him, two things happen. As a good and loving father, he sees the dangerous direction you're going and he wants to bring you back. Second, as a jealous lover, he sees you going after adulterous partners. And he is stirred by two motivations here. Love for you and jealousy for you against his enemies. And he will dry up that provision. Not only will he dry it up, he will come himself and destroy that provision in order to draw you back to him. In order to bring your place back to him, recognizing that he alone can truly satisfy you. So I want to keep going. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. Could preach a whole message in every message, and I can feel Sean saying, how many more verses? So, 1 Timothy 6. Maybe it's 2 Timothy 6. I lied. Hold on. It's not 2 Timothy 6 because there is no 2 Timothy 6. There is a 1 Timothy 6, but... Yep, okay, never mind. Yes, it's 1 Timothy 6. He says this. He's just going on and he's rebuking people who are uh, 
caught up in disputes which produce envy and all these contentious things. And he says, And constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now look, I'm not trying to get into the whole message about uh, you know, Christian poverty. That's not what I'm saying. God will entrust those who have been faithful with little with much. And he wants to pour out the riches of the wicked on the righteous. And he wants to provide with great abundance. But he will not do that for people who will set up false gods in that process. If that wealth and that provision has not already been firmly put in its place as a tool to accomplish the works of God... You're in danger, and that's what it's saying. Some people have even fallen into that trap and left the faith over it. Do you think God is okay with that? Of course not. All of this is rooted in this idea of where we find our satisfaction. Psalm 17, 15. We're going to get into the, the positive side of these things. In Psalm 17, 15, this is what David sings, proclaims. He says, but I will see your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. I want you to hear that language. I will see your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. In one of the other translations, it says, I will be satisfied in your form. Right? So depending on how you translate this passage, it could go one or two ways. Neither one of them is a big divergence, but one is I will be satisfied in your presence. The other one is I will be satisfied in your likeness. Psalm 990, verse 14. It's like sword drills from youth, from Youth group days. This is David's song. Starting in verse 13, he says, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. And I really love this one before we go into the last verse. Look at the connection. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. All our days. David is singing multiple times. I could have had 50 psalms lined up here, guys. But David's constant theme is that if you would come and be present and satisfy us with your faithful love, your presence, your temple, your power, your victory, all these languages you use, then we will be able to sing and rejoice in your goodness for all our days. 
I love this, but now we're going to get to some red letters. This is bringing us full circle from a message I preached maybe 10 weeks ago. In John chapter 4, verse 10, this is the woman at the well. When I preached on this, I was talking about the the Jeremiah 2 tie-in to the, the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus on the eighth day standing up and proclaiming that he is the fountain of living water, right? And tying that into the Jeremiah prophecy where he says, my people have committed these two gross evils. Remember, they've committed many evils, but the two that stood out to him were these two evils that they had abandoned him as the fountain of living water and they created broken cisterns for themselves that couldn't even hold water. Those were the two main things he held against his people. And then Jesus shows up in John 7 and 8 and says, I am this fountain of living water and you have rejected me, but if you come to me now... You will be filled and you will never thirst again. But before he does that, in John 4, he meets this woman at the well. And he says this. Right before this, he had asked her to give him a drink. And she was like, oh, no, you can't take a drink from a Samaritan. We're unclean. You're a Jew. You don't even like us. And then Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God. Now listen to this in the context of the theme of being satisfied. If you knew the gift of God, even more so, think and put yourself in this place. And I want you to listen and hear it as if Jesus is speaking to you at the well. Right now, in your life context, imagine your life context, imagine the things you need, imagine the things you stress about, you worry about, the, the stuff that, that, that you need God to come through in, or the stuff that you're in abundance with and you feel you may have straight into pride and fallen away from from your dependence on the Lord. And listen to what God is saying and the heart he's saying behind it. He answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She says, sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus looked at her and said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This is the theme. This is the whole idea. Jesus is saying, listen, you can drink this water. It's not going to satisfy what you're after. It won't. He goes on right after this to tell her, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I know. You've had many husbands and the one you're with right now isn't even your husband. And she's rocked to the core as she realizes this is the Messiah. And she realizes the offering. And when she realizes, you're right, I have been chasing things to satisfy me that have never satisfied. And I live in a constant state of dissatisfaction pursuing the next temporary satisfaction. 
But when she clicked the two that he really was this promised Messiah and he really could offer her true satisfaction, her whole world changes. And that's the offer. The offer is this. The temporary satisfactions that you have to continually pursue and re-up and chase down and work so hard for are just that. They are temporary false gods. They are things that are deceiving you and trying to pull you into a place that think they can satisfy you. And he's saying, come to me. I am your only true satisfaction. How long will it take for us to realize that? Come to me, come to me, come to me. How long will it take before we recognize the constant buffeting in our lives and the constant conflicts and issues that come from either our pursuit of other things for satisfaction or God trying to redirect us towards him? There's this quote by John Piper. He says this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And this is such an incredibly biblical statement, right? It's the reason why it's sustained itself for so long. Piper knows the scriptures, right? But more so, even if you disagree with some of his theology, Piper knows the heart of God. This is a man who's walked with God for 50-something years, okay? He's at the end of his life. He is a a gem in the kingdom of heaven, a jewel in the church right now, right? He's got a lot of truth, a lot of wisdom, but his best, his most... Powerful contribution is this, the way he captures the heart of God for his people, right? The, the idea, he calls it Christian hedonism, right? It's this idea that a Christian's greatest pursuit should be finding pleasure and satisfaction in the Lord. And so in this quote, it's God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And when you unpack this biblical truth, You find this, it's God is after his own glory. That's his ultimate goal, okay? God being glorified, and it is to our greatest benefit that he be most glorified. For him to get that across, for his glory to be seen, is for everyone's maximum benefit. It is not some selfish, narcissistic uh, theme that God has where he has to have all the glory. Wrong. That's you projecting your own humanism on the divine spirit who is so far above humans, it's laughable. But if we saw even a glimpse of his glory, we would say, Lord, all of it. Be most glorified. And so because of that, God's pursuit is his maximum glory. And the way God has worked into his creation for him to be most glorified in the heavens and on the earth is for a people to turn from every other false God and every other possible source of satisfaction and turn and recognize him and say, in you, I am fully satisfied. Then every principality, every power, every ruler of darkness in this age and in every age and every person and every human would look and say, 
Who is this God that has accomplished such a thing? Our satisfaction puts on display the glory of God, not just to his people, but to the powers. Do you understand? To the powers. This is an eternal, universal declaration of the glory of God when people turn and find their satisfaction in him. And this is what Paul is after in Ephesians throughout the whole book. It is his masterwork declaration of the greatness of Christ and the expression of that through his church on the earth. Our being satisfied in him becomes this ultimate expression of warfare against every enemy of Christ, declaring to them, you have failed, he has conquered, and the lamb is now receiving his reward. In your face, right before you, it is being made a public spectacle before you, before the heavens and the earth, right now, as the people of God and those lost who are coming because of the people of God begin to find their full source and satisfaction in Him. And this is a lofty decree. This idea of finding the satisfaction, when you look in this, in Ephesians 2 and 3, he says this, He talks about in Ephesians 2, I want to read it so I don't stumble over it, but he says, He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under Christ's feet. And then... He appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. If that doesn't set the bar to the heavens, then I don't know what does. That is the high calling and privilege of being part of the body of Christ. And the high missional call that we have in this short time that we have while we're here with them. He says that. But then he goes on and says this. This grace from God was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that I can't get my voice to an octave high enough to do justice for that statement. This is so that God's multifaceted, manifold wisdom may now be made known through the church 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to the purpose of the ages which he made in the Messiah Jesus our Lord, in whom we now have boldness. The church has boldness and access and confidence through faith in him, so then we cannot be discouraged and we can rejoice in our afflictions for our own glory. But now you skip right down to verse 29, sorry, verse 20 and 21, where he's summing up this whole thought and he says, Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask and think, according to the very power that works in you, the church, to him, I want you to get this, through the power that works in you as the church, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. His emphasis is this, that the glory of God that he is going to receive is going to be found in his church and in Christ for all generations but forever. In other words, he's referring to the everlasting, eternal glory of God. <clears throat> the glory of God forever and ever through Christ and his church to the Father. When it's all said and done, we get this glorious picture, right? From scripture that tells us when Christ has come again, and received all the nations as his reward because of the work he has accomplished through his church. He is going to take all of it, all the victory, all the conquering, the ultimate victory, the whole reward that he deserves, all that glory, and he serves it up and says, I'm handing this to the Father. That's the final scene the final act of creation, guys. And the scripture gives us this picture that at the end, Christ himself will take it all and give it to the Father as his maximum glory, his final victory. That's the picture scripture leaves us with. Paul says it like this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever because in the church, the fullness of God is dwelling. The one who fills all in all. That is the design and purpose and that is what Christ is working to bring us towards. To make us pure and spotless so we can live up to such a thing. So what's the practical? Right here, guys. What does it mean for you to find your satisfaction in Christ? What does it mean for you to find your satisfaction in God himself? What does that mean? Think of some of the things you find satisfaction in right now. Just think of it. Just lay it all out in the table of your mind right now. Here's something I find real satisfaction in. Here's something I find satisfaction in. Here's some things I find contentment in. Here's some things I really find satisfaction, security in. Love, joy. Here are all the things I find them in. 
and just put it there and assess that and say, are those things in Christ? Or are those things in my life apart from Christ? Do these compete with Christ or do these express a greater picture of Christ in my life? Are these things that I find satisfaction in apart from Christ or are these things I recognize as good gifts from Christ to me? Remember, I promised you Isaiah 12. On that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have had compassion on me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid of anything else. Because Yah is the Lord, my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Celebrate his deeds among the peoples. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. That's the whole chapter. This is the whole declaration. Do you hear that? This is the progression of someone who has experienced the withdrawing of the Lord, the distance, even the anger of the Lord against him. And he said, but it did not last forever. It was meant to serve a purpose, to draw me in. But now I've seen your loving kindness to me. And now I've recognized, wait, you are my salvation. Wait, you've become my salvation. I have seen this and experienced it and tasted it myself. Therefore, I must declare this among the nations. I must sing this among the people. And then this final declaration in this thing is to declare to the other people around him, saying this, cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is actually among us. In his greatness. The cry is to say, open your eyes, turn away from the lesser things and look. He's here. He's among us. And his satisfaction is available for us. He wants to satisfy us fully. It tells us that when he's among us in his greatness, there is joy. There are pleasures forevermore. There is more than enough to satisfy us to overflowing so that within ourselves we become an extension of that to others. Guys, the church is on a mission. And it starts with finding its full satisfaction in Christ. And that starts by first going through the land of your heart and your soul and your mind and destroying every idol you can find 
every obstacle you can find, every enemy that you can find, even things that may be an enemy, you take them and you crush them and you scatter them upon the rivers and you set up altars to the Lord in every place that those things stood so that every time you turn around, you see an altar that says, holiness to the Lord. An altar in your heart, altar in your mind, altar in your soul, altar in your spirit. Guys, this is, it's, it's the gospel. The gospel being proclaimed. This is the mission. When you tie it together, you see this is why Jesus says, hey, all the prophets and the law summed up in this one thing, guys. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then love your neighbors the same way. Do you see? It's, it's find your satisfaction in him and then demonstrate that satisfaction to others so they find that satisfaction through you in him and the gospel continues to be proclaimed. This is the kerygma. Paul in Romans 1:16 says this, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the very power of God for salvation to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and to all who believe. Do you know why it says that? He says this, because this, the righteousness of God is then revealed in that. That's why. The power of God for salvation, because the righteousness of God is revealed through it. His glory is seen through the gospel proclamation, but not just saying it, by incarnating it. Do you understand? It's, it's, the, it's the incarnation that brings the proclamation that reveals the glory and the righteousness of God that draws men to Him so they experience that He has now become their salvation. And when that happens, the church will get together and we'll begin to declare in our lives together on mission that God is among us in his greatness. And you will want to invite everyone you can think of to come to the places where that is happening, where God is among us, in your home, in your life groups, in our corporate gatherings here, in first principles, at your job site, in your family gatherings, you will become aware because your satisfaction is constantly tied to him. And when you deviate, you will feel that. You will feel that loss of satisfaction. You will feel the sense of a lesser satisfaction. What do we do in the light of this, guys? How do we respond? How do we respond? We can keep doing the same old things, expecting different results, or we can set our eyes to the mountains and say, God, I need your help to change in a radical way. I need you to come resuscitate me. God, teach me to find my satisfaction in you. That starts with an action. This is the promise of God. He says, listen. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's a promise. 
The radical change is removing the obstacles, getting rid of every dream or hope or aspiration or goal that is not in line with the will of God and that you know specifically it is and set your pursuit solely to find your full satisfaction in Him. That means when you feel lonely, you go to the Father first in your heart. That means when you feel tired, you go to the Father first in your heart. When you feel frustrated, when you feel anxious, when you feel fearful, when you feel worry or concern, you go to the Father first knowing that He is your satisfaction, that He is your provision. Now, He may put it on the heart of other members of the body of Christ to come around and start encouraging you, start loving you, Start speaking words of life to you. And through his body, satisfy those things in you. And if you stay in right alignment and recognize that all good things come from the Father of lights above, then you will recognize, hey, if this person, this broken, insignificant human being that can barely live right on its own apart from the Spirit was, was, had enough thought towards me to come and be concerned about me, how much more does my perfect Father in heaven see me and want to express through his people his desire to meet me and to satisfy me in this place? What if we just got realigned so that we could receive the fullness of Christ through the Spirit, through the voice of the Father, through his people, even through donkeys if necessary? Let's stand up and give God a chance to drill this in, guys. Go after it. Let's corporately together, let's just begin to release a cry of a desire for him to satisfy us. <clears throat> right now in your heart, before God, you don't need to wait for anything. Just if it's stern in you, begin to release it. Begin to pray. Begin to request. Begin to let your heart stir up and release sounds and prayers and songs that declare a cry to him that you want to be greater satisfied in him than you've been. You want a greater sense of satisfaction and completeness and fullness in him. It's available for us. Let's reach out and grab it. He's promised it to us. And then be ready to do the hard work of digging your heels in to go after him when he shows you how to do it. God, you are enough. Draw us closer to you, God. Draw us to you as the source of our living water that we would come and we would learn how to drink deeper and deeper and deeper until we wake up and are, are finally able to find our satisfaction in you the way our heart desires it that you would stir up a pant within us like the deer. That you'd stir that up within us. That you would remove what needs to be removed. You'd bring what needs to be brought to direct our eyes to you as our satisfaction. Do it, Lord, as only you can do.